You might think that an interview with a Hollywood actor, one who's been in the business for more than 40 years, play acting in movies like Transformers and Moneyball, and TV shows like The West Wing, 24, and his recurring role today in Fox's The Resident, you might assume our conversation for this week's episode of Game Face Execs would be, well, as authentic as the tinsel lining the department stores during the holidays. After all, Tinseltown is where Glenn Morshower works. So if that's what you're expecting, spoiler alert, you're going to be disappointed and surprised and very inspired. Hey, Glenn Morshower. Thanks for joining us on Game Face Execs Podcast. My pleasure, Rob. I'm glad to be here. My goodness. Uh, you know, you're at home outside of the, you're in the Dallas community. You live in Dallas area. You were raised in Texas. So those of us watching on YouTube, we get to see a little bit into the Morshower home. What, what do you got behind you there? What, what's your favorite? This, this whole area here, as is the rest of our house, is a tribute to the 70s. So if you're missing anything in your life from the 70s and you've not seen it since, wow. it's probably here. So my Planet of the Apes lunchbox, right? We, we have it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ken Walls busted me on this the other day. He said, dude, do you have an eight-track tape oh. player? I said, no. And then I went, wait a minute, we do. Of course you do. <laughs> we, we do. What's your favorite? We haven't played anything on it in 45 years, but you we have. an eight-track cassette that you still have? Some, you know, for me, I've still got Paul McCartney and Wings. How's that? Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> does, it, does it play? Does it still oh, play? No. I you don't have know. a device to play it on. No, I just use it to prop up that corner of the desk that wobbles. <laughs> Hey, Glenn, it's great to see you. This is an unusual guest that we get to have someone from show business with your stature joining us, but it's a real treat. And thank you. As you know, we do the Game Face Execs podcast both through audio and video. And, and those watching on YouTube have the luxury of being able to see you as we talk. But I have to ask you something. You've said in the past to me that you cherish eye contact. I do. I'm giving you eye contact right now, even though it may not look like it. I'm looking oh, right it. down the barrel. I feel it. So what is it about eye contact that you cherish so much, Mr. Morshower? First of all, that Mr. Garbage <laughs> is completely unnecessary. It's wasted on me. And now I play a lot of characters who get referred to as Mr. And I've had quite a career playing authority figures, but it's just always Glenn. To answer your question, eye contact is everything for me because that's where people can't lie, especially to the perceptive. So I listen to two things. I listen to one thing and watch the other. I watch people's eyes because I'm looking for what's going on behind them. It's actually a show business expression when they say, someone says, why is it I find that actor so intriguing? And they'll ask a casting director or a producer. And they say, you know, it's because of what he's got going on behind the eyes. Mm -hmm. And I get it because that's where the facade disappears. When you look deep into someone's eyes, there's no more smoke and mirrors. There's no more facade. There's no more posturing. There's only the truth. Another thing that is a tell 
we'll call it a tell, that telegraphs information and informs us as to what's really going on, which is all I care about. I only care about what's really going on with people. I wrote a chapter about this once called The Presentational Self, which is my experience has shown me, and I'm, I'm only here doing this interview with you to express opinions, and I don't label them the truth for the world, but they're certainly the truth for me. And the truths that I hold to be true are ones that have been tested, and they've held up under scrutiny and inspection. That's something that's a magnificent absolute about truth in general, Rob, is that truth doesn't mind being inspected because it has nothing to hide. So it holds up really, really well under inspection. People who speak the truth hold up really well, not so surprisingly, under inspection as well. And when people are lying, they tend to break down under scrutiny or close inspection. In the sidecar of eye contact is tonality. That's the other home of truth, is you listen to someone's tonality. So if you say, how are you? And they say, I'm fine. The word said one thing. It said, you're fine. But the tone told the truth. And when you hear someone go, I'm fine, I usually will go, no, you're not. And it always gets a smile because it's calling them on why did you feel the need to disguise or hide who you were? It's okay if you're not feeling fine. It's okay. It's okay to have an off chapter. It's okay to have an off day or an off hour or an off week. If you start getting into months of month-long periods of time where things seem to be off, probably time to take a close look at that and see what it's going to take to inspire you to get life back on track. But no, eye contact is everything, and my business requires it. I mean, it's a skill set. I think it's of even greater importance in our personal lives. But I've learned to take what was always important to me in my personal life and turn it into a big career advantage to know how to look people in the eye. And I'll add one other thing to it. When you're barking orders, there's an additional film trick called do so minus blinking. So if I wanted, if I decided to do it, I could sit here and talk with you for the next 10 minutes and not blink one time. I've timed myself and it's not even difficult to do. Some people find it just the thought of not blinking, you know, after 20 seconds, they're madly blinking. And this is just side information, but it's interesting that when you're playing authority figures, if you blink during one of your admonishments, you lose your power. It weakens the character. So, yeah, I think eye contact is huge. And if people are afraid to do it, there's a really good chance that they're hiding something. There's something they don't want you to see. So they'll look up briefly, but then they turn away. And if they can look unashamedly right at you, and hold eye contact for an undetermined period of time, I'm able to tell that there's a really good chance they don't have anything that they need to hide. So it's interesting then when you're creating a character, but it's not just the words on a script that you're considering. Oh, gosh, no. Yeah, you're considering the comportment of the individual. Obviously, you, you do a whole character exposition about their background, even if there's nothing in the script about their background, you develop that, obviously. Right. All the way through their their wardrobe, their mannerisms, the way they their gait of their walk, their gestures. Their educational and, level, their speech yeah, patterns. And the way they look at people. 
I mean, literally. Or don't. Yes. And Glenn, speaking of the 70s and eye contact, mm-hmm. as you were describing that, there was one movie character that I think of that was famous for having a hard time making eye contact. That was Talia Shire's character in Rocky. In Rocky. Right? What a beautiful scene that was when he finally got her to look him in the eye. Mm-hmm. Very memorable scene for me. I don't know why, but I'm thinking about that as you're describing the importance of being able to make eye contact. I want to add another word to this discussion, which is it is an indicator of how present someone is. Mm. So it's a way someone can take emotional roll call. And you'll know that the person who is looking at you when you're talking is present front and center. There's none of this, hey, Rob, what's going on? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm over here and I'm not, uh, yeah, I, I see you over there. I mean, so what kind of relationship is that? And texting. I was going to say, what if you're doing this? Texting in the middle of lunch, my thought is, why don't you go be with whoever it is you're texting that you're finding so important? And this is generational. I mean, we're seeing a lot of this nowadays and it's not even new it's been going on for the last several years however long texting has been popular and while there are advantages to it you need to get a quick word to someone and not open up a big conversation hey rob catch you at 3 p.m great that's beautiful but i'm talking about sitting there having a conversation with the person you're not with and what's interesting is i have i've done my research and what i have found to be so is that the people who do this, if you were to insist that they go be with whoever they're texting or whomever they're texting, do you know that when they get with them, the cycle repeats itself and they're doing it all over again with someone else, which simply means this, they don't know how to be where they are. They haven't learned how to be where they are. They're always being where they're not. Now, if, that, if that's not a great life teaching, I don't know what is to simply learn how to be where you are. Don't spend hang time hanging out where you're not. You'll never be effective that way. And you'll have a lifetime of marginal relationships at best because you were never present with the ones you were with. You remember that song growing up? Love the one you're with. Love the one you're with. Do, 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 do. You don't have to sing the whole thing, Glenn, please. I was just going to give you a couple of bars. Yeah, we're good. We're good. <laughs> I've never been cut off while doing karaoke. <laughs> we get it, more shower. You can stop at any time. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I have that problem. I have that problem that... Which problem? Not karaoke, by the way. I'm very good at that. I okay. have the problem of when I'm somewhere... I'm thinking about where I'm not, right? So if I'm sitting with family members and I'm making a public confession here, I hope they don't watch this episode. Yeah. (laughs) When I'm with family members, I think about where I'm not. I'm not at my desk right now getting that task done or I'm not talking to that friend or that business associate or whatever. And so I know that I've got that problem, that it's a weakness. I don't want to beat myself up too much. I don't think it's destroying my relationships, but it's my challenge. It's a challenge I've always got to work on is being present. 
And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur, I've always had kind of the glasses half empty mentality mm. because no one else is going to fill it for me. And you, as I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you've been essentially self-employed for 40 plus years right? as a professional actor. But I want to, I want to make the audience aware of something. I'm sorry I'm speaking, but I, I want to make them aware of something. Why would you be sorry you're speaking? I love it. I, I actually had a question for you. Well, this, they're listening today because they want to hear you, not me. Well, can I at least ask this one question of you? Volum. Which is, is there ever a place where you go where you don't feel that? So, for example, if instead of being with your family or whomever, but you decided you were having thoughts of being in your office, I'm going based on your words. Mm-hmm. When you go to the office, where are you wishing you were? Or where are you thinking you're not? Is there ever a place where you land and go, I'm entirely here. Wow, this feels good. I'm not thinking about being anywhere else. Yes. And I think that's called spiritual meditation. Okay. And I have those moments and I've had to consciously, intentionally create those moments within my life. In fact, within my days. So when I set aside that time, in fact, that time is pretty sacrosanct for me. It's in those moments. I don't feel like I need to be anywhere else. I don't feel guilty that I'm not anywhere else. Beautiful. But I need to expand that, right, in my life. So now you bring increased peace, I'll promise you, because right now, and I'm not saying this for viewership popularity, I mean this, right now, this is what's going on for me. Well, that's what I wanted to say to the to our listeners. I wanted to point out that before this interview began, you and I kind of checked our watches to make sure that I wasn't overtaking your time. And you said to me, Rob, I am totally here for you. And you put no time limit on this on this interview. Correct. I know there's going to be a time limit on it, but I just want to attest to the audience that you practice what you preach. I do. And you made me feel like there's nothing else that is more important for the next hour or so, except talking with me in this interview. So thank you. It's more than just a feeling though, Rob, it's the truth. So it's one thing if I'm trying to engender a feeling, but it's the truth. It's how I really feel so much so that if I were in some circumstance where, for example, it was like, I got 15 or 20 minutes, Rob, let's go. I'm of the ilk that I wouldn't even do it. I wouldn't do it at all. And the reason is, if I'm that rushed, there's no way I'm going to be present for you. I'm not going to be present for an audience. I'm too rushed to paint with the brush that I want to paint with, which is the gentle brush of life that discovers itself. It's not in a hurry. And it wants to explore a moment. It wants to, when we happen upon a tributary, take that tributary. That's one of the reasons I don't prep my answers. It's one of the reasons that in my speeches, when I speak to big companies, I don't do a PowerPoint presentation. There's nothing wrong with them. I think they're great. I think there are many speakers that are better with them, but they're not for me. They're not for me because by committing to form, which clearly that's form, I wind up blocking all of the intuitions that come up spontaneously that want to be expressed. Now, here's what's key. I trust them implicitly. 
So if I get a whisper from above, that whisper is not there for me to just hear it. That whisper is there for me to act upon it. And it's, I've had so many people that will come up to me afterward and say, I was so moved by your speech. I mean, how long did it take you to create that? And the answer is a lifetime because it's based on trust, which I've had my whole life. All I know is I take the stage and I will know what to say now and I will know what to say next. And it will be revealed unto me. It's not a plan. I'm not going to take them here first and then massage that area over here and that will ready them to hear this. I just feel, and I not only feel my truth, but I feel their truth, which I think might even be the bigger gift is when you can step in front of an audience and just take a good old-fashioned whiff, just and breathe in what's going on in the room. Every room has needs. Every room has collective consciousness. Averaged out, everyone's contribution divided by the number of people present equals the consciousness of the room. We can average it out. So you've got a large number of overachievers, and then you've got a lot of people that are new that are trying to discover who it is they are and learn about their own abilities to generate results in life and so forth. And and you average it out and the room, and it may sound woo-woo, and I genuinely don't care. I don't care if it sounds woo-woo. It's the truth. The room itself, if you trust, will speak to you. I find that moments speak to us. It's the reason I became an actor is to allow a moment to speak to us and then be filmed while allowing that to happen and then get a paycheck for it. (laughs) And applause. Those meant more to me years ago. It doesn't mean they don't mean something now, but there is a time when I think I was really fueled by it. And now I work from a sense of personal fulfillment that is not generated from the outside in, but truly from the inside out. That's been a a real blessing and a real healing in my life. And why are you doing what you're doing? I know you've got questions you want to get onto, but while this is on my mind, I want to mention an epiphany that came to me in the last two weeks. It's not a cutting edge, edge concept, and it's something I've thought of before many times, but I've never had it show up quite the way it showed up and in this specific wording. And here was the wording that was, I call it a God download. And I'm open to talking about religion. I know it's one of the topics a lot of people don't talk about. I'm fine with it. But in my God download, and I even have an associated chill that it is accompanied by. Anytime I'm feeling what I call heavenly truth, the gift that I've been given to verify it. So it's a self-verifying download that within me, there will be a corresponding sensation that is akin to an entire body rush, a chill, a chill that actually gives me goosebumps and the hairs on my arm will stand up. It's sort of like, yeah, this is worth hanging on to. And that's my message from above is this is no ordinary information. This is huge. Pay attention, Glenn. And because you're being utilized on a large scale, You're a valuable vessel in terms of numbers. Your intrinsic value is of no greater worth than any of my children, this being the voice of God, meaning that you are an equal child. However, 
the way we've got you positioned in life is that when your show airs, for example, you are seen by 5 million people live a week and many more millions in subsequent airings, obviously. That's someone who's able to reach a lot of people. Now, you can either sit around getting off to yourself and throwing a big party about, you know, as to how wonderful you are, which is really lame, or you can realize that that is quite an honor and a huge responsibility and one for which I'm immeasurably grateful. So I have been selected for a really large assignment. I don't know what else to say other than thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. And I will show up fully for that task. Here was the download. What are you doing? Two questions. First question, what are you doing? The second question is what is what you're doing? So having answered the first question, you got to answer the first question first. Question two is what is what you're doing keeping you from doing? And it's life-changing. And I've shared it with a number of people recently. And as I said, it's not a cutting edge concept, but I've never heard it worded that way. It's very succinct, almost impossible to not understand. It's easy to grasp that here's what I'm doing. And while I might even like it or love it even, is my commitment to, to its continuation, to continuing to do it, what is it keeping me from doing or what is it keeping me from discovering? Are there greater versions of the light within me that could be expressing themselves if I wasn't so committed to staying in the thing I'm in, doing what I'm doing? What is it blocking? I know what it's giving me, but there's a condition. I know you're familiar with the condition known as velvet handcuffs. So all of a sudden, you're handcuffed to your own comfort. And the problem, it feels good. You don't really feel like you're its prisoner until you take a greater look, a deeper dive into what would actually be available to you if you had enough backbone to unlock the velvet handcuffs and say, I am not a comfort seeker. I'm a cutting edge spirit that is signed up and suited up for the fullest expression of everything God intended it to be. And years ago, when I was 18 years old, I vowed that I am suited up and showing up for the assignment of being me to the fullest extent available. I prayed that prayer word for word when I was 18 years old. I'm not bragging, but I will tell you straight up, I don't know a lot of 18-year-olds that are that much on course with purpose in their step. And I was. The only difference between me and 18 is I have a lot less hair. But my verbiage unchanged since those years. So I was always a man on a mission. And I understood that there was a huge gift being given us, all of us, called life. But somehow it seemed, and I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt by saying it seemed, Rob, it seemed that I was clearer on the bigness of that than most people I ever talked with. That life was enough, life itself was enough of a reason and a justification to throw a huge party. 
what happened? Did you get a raise? No, I just remembered how cool this system is that we live and operate and have our beingness within. That's cause for a party. That stuff gets me teared up. It's not a performance. It's authentic. I am jacked up about this dance called life. And it puzzles me endlessly why that spirit is not more present in our world. And it's not. And because it's not, there is an internal mandate that says, then you got work to do, brother. You got work to do because you are here to help others discover their own light. You're here to help people remember who it is they are, who and what it is they are. And that all these things that they refer to as challenges, they're a friggin' joke in the mind of God. And we have a saying in the South called, it amounts to the significance of a pimple on a gnat's ass. Meaning it's small, baby. You done got yourself worked up about something that's tiny. And all you have to do is stop and remember that you outswam 500 million sperm in order to get here in the first place. And that was your first act. You really think that was an accident? Or is there a chance that that was a gift from our creator to start your life adventure with some real crystal clear instruction as to who it is you are, what it is you are, and what it is you're capable of. Do you get it? I don't mean you, Rob. I'm saying from above, a voice saying, do you get it now? Do you get that you're not weak? Do you get that all of this is available to you the moment you fully grasp who it is and what it is you are? And then you'll quit swimming in the kiddie pool in the town of Complainerville about everything that's wrong with life. You'll get out of the kiddie pool and go, what was I thinking? This is the last thing I want to say while I'm on this roll, because I know you've got questions you want to ask. But there is an exercise that I would highly recommend for your audience, and that is to visit your death day. Really visit it. Go to using God's most underused gift, which is the gift of imagination, Because we don't push the envelope of using it. So we use it for basically a lot of minor tasks. And, you know, the imagination goes, okay, thank you. But just so you know, I I could be serving you in a much greater capacity. I'm channeling the voice of the imagination. That's what I feel it says to us all the time is, listen, if you just want me to come off the bench and score three or four points, great. But just so you know, I could give you a 55-point game in your life, but you don't seem to trust me to do that. So if you want to underutilize me, be my guest. Here is what I think the healthiest use of your imagination is, which is to pay a visit to the day of your death, no matter what the age, whether it's a week from now, a month from now, 50 years from now, whatever it is, but teleport forward to that time. Take a look back at how you showed up in your life. Do a full life review. And now you're done because you've actually died in your mind, and go back and look, could you have done it any differently? We all know the answer to that. Could you have done it better? Could you have lived with greater intention? Could you have increased the level of love in your life? Could you have helped more people? Could you have spent more time in the remembrance of this beautiful dance you were in the middle of? Could you have been more encouraging? Could you? And the answer is yes, 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 and yes. Well, then I tell you what, why don't you go back now and do it? My whole life has been devoted to living my second life during my first life, my whole life. 
is I don't have memories that preceded that approach. My whole life, I've been blessed with the understanding that you actually have to die first in order to live well, and that it's a mental exercise. You have to go to the time when you're not here and you can't do anything about the fact that you're not here or that you're going to be leaving in 45 seconds. You have 45 seconds worth of heartbeats left and they're going to end and you won't be able to do anything about that. But now we're going to grant you a stay of execution and we're going to send you back. And I'm going to ask you this question. Having gone through all of that, really, really, I don't mean just thinking about it, but if that were really the case, do you think there's an excellent chance that when you got back, you might just do it better? You bet. You bet is the obvious answer. I've never, I've asked that question for so many years. I've never had anyone hear that and go, no, I'm pretty sure I'd screw it up even worse. I've never heard that. And so we're not fully plugged in. If life were a 10-pronged device, we're using about two of them. And so we're missing out on all of this other available guidance and information and power and understanding. And anyway, please ask questions. That's called what happens when I'm on a roll. And none of that was planned. None oh. of that was rehearsed. It's, that's just what's brewing inside of me. Okay, let's talk about some football now. Yeah. <laughs> About them Cowboys, Glenn. Yeah, well, we're one and two. No, let's, I want to go back to when you said I had questions I wanted to ask. I have questions, certainly, that I have jotted down, but Mm -hmm. I like these conversations to be free-flowing. And I would like to suggest that my next question comes from a whisper. Cool. So... I want to talk about the whisper. There's so much that you just said that I wish we could dive further into. Sure. Start with the whisper. I've heard you, and and we've had conversations before about this. You've described it as the whisper. I like that word. I've often referred to it and have heard it referred to as an impression. Okay. Whatever you might call it. I think we're on the same page. Mm -hmm. How does Glenn Morshauer receive whispers. What are you doing at the time? How are you living at that moment? Are you engaged in a certain activity? Or does it come to you unexpectedly? Or do you have to prepare for it and then it arrives? Could you just tell us how that works in your how, life? How many questions do I have on the runway here? <laughs> that was a lot of them. Yeah. I'm going to start with the one, Rob, of are you doing anything to prepare for it or are you doing anything at the time? The answer is yes and no. The no part is that whispers occur anywhere and everywhere. And my favorite expression to clarify that where it won't need any more discussion is including on the toilet. Some of my greatest epiphanies have occurred while seated on the throne. That's fact. I've written chapters from the throne because I ran them in my mind. And then I went and sat down at my desk and wrote them, but they were all formulated while sitting on the toilet. May I interrupt there, Glenn, just for a moment? Would this observation be accurate? It's there and only there are we almost all assured of privacy and aloneness. That's certainly fair enough. And so maybe there's something to that. 
that a, you know that's a deeper dive on the subject of being on the toilet when epiphanies show up than anyone has ever offered, Rob. So congratulations on your insightfulness. Well, there's a solitude there, which might be, in your case, I don't know if it is for others, but in your case, that sends a message to you that solitude is fruitful for Mm -hmm. the Well, and thank you for not being so quick to react to say, well, that's just silly. Now he wants to talk about epiphanies he got on the toilet. And instead, you took it at face value and said, well, maybe there's something there worth exploring. And maybe it's in connection with solitude. I couldn't agree with you more. I think solitude is one of the greatest facilitators we have. Showers are another place. I mean, with a name like more shower, come on. But when you're showering, I think there's something about the act of cleaning, right? Purifying. As you're cleaning yourself, your receptors are being opened up to receive new. We get the film of the world off of us right? The film, the energy, I just call it film. You think of film that is blocking a lens. I think we clean our lens when we shower. We certainly clean our lens when we pray. That's a lens cleaning exercise for sure. I do believe that there is a universality to the whisper. I believe it is ever present in all people. I do not hold the belief that there is an elitist group that receives whispers and it is unique unto them. That to me is an arrogant spiritual belief, my opinion. And it's also a disregard for the human race. Yes. Saying that I'm at the top of the pedestal. Yes, it is elitist to the nth degree, and it's just not even accurate. So what I do think is accurate that maybe runs on an adjacent track is that we declare our candidacy for the degree of whispers that we receive. The frequency is increased by volunteering. So when we volunteer ourselves to be receptors, we are treated differently. Everyone has whispers. So now, are you an acknowledger? Because that's step one. Are you someone who completely minimizes its significance? Or do you say, no, that's interesting. I'm going to consider this. What I'm being moved to feel right now is interesting. Or are you in the top group, which is the action taker? Or are you someone who is a vetoer? And a vetoer is someone, I even have the two most common. I've done a lot of work in this area to determine the common reasons why people veto their whispers. So they're given an internal directive That to me is what a whisper is. It is not audible, but it might as well be because it is every bit as loud in our internal universe as attention came our choppers. I mean, it's, it's, you can't not hear it. So we all hear it, but maybe we've been schooled to think of it as nonsense or no big deal, or that was just a weird thought. No, it wasn't a weird thought. It came from the depths of you and it wasn't accidentally there. Our soul knows what's up. I really grasp that, that it knows what's up. There are parts of us that are infinitely wise, but are we being guided by those parts? So here are the reasons they veto. The vetoers of the world who veto their own whispers, their own sacred leadership, because one, it doesn't make any sense, meaning you might get something from the nonlinear side of the tracks. So you can't make immediate sense of it. But for some reason, you're being told to go to Kansas this week. 
Topeka specifically, would you immediately start trying to find reasons to campaign for the word no? Or would you simply go to Topeka? I'm one of the small group who would promptly go to Topeka without questioning it. And I'm not saying this again for your listeners. I'm telling you this as my bud. If nobody were watching this, I'm the odd duck that would go to Topeka. And here's why. I fully grasp that things would be revealed to me in Topeka that will not be until I follow the whispers instructions. That's one. Reason two is that they base their adherence to the whisper on convenience. If it's convenient, sure. Sure, I'll do it. But if it asks some extra of me in terms of time, in terms of commitment, in terms of money, whatever it is, and if it's going to be inconvenient for me on any of those levels, the answer is no. And here is what I hear from above. The above is saying, really? Hmm, that's too bad. Because what you were unwilling to give of your time, of your energy, and of your money, had you just done that and not doubted it, you'd have been given back 10 or more times what your investment was. So again, what am I doing? And what is what I'm doing keeping me from doing? So if you're holding back because you don't want to invest that, what are you blocking by trying to hold back? You're holding on to your time. You're holding on to your money and all that. When if you had followed your directive, you would have seen, my God, I will never distrust my whispers again because they know what's up. It's the ultimate trusted friend. That's my experience. My whisper has never misled me. You said trusted friend. I think also of the term reliable partner. Great. Right? Don't we all want to have a partner, a friend who we can always rely on? Don't you know it? I had this conversation this week, not even two days ago. I was saying that one of the things I would love put on my headstone is he was reliable. Mm. That's a huge word in my vocabulary. Yeah. Because the minute someone is unreliable, I don't know why you'd want to spend a lot of time with someone that you knew was unreliable. She wouldn't be able to count on anything. Yeah. You're probably not going to do what they said they would do. And they're probably loaded with things that are not true at all. So why would you waste time hanging out with someone that was unreliable? And they tell you, you know, we'll grab dinner at six. And at five of call comes the predictable phone call that says, yeah, I'm not going to be up for that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me in my life, Glenn, I want that heavenly person, persona, spirit, and people may refer to it in different ways. I want my God to be reliable to me. Mm-hmm. I expect it. It's like, I prayed for it. Why can't I have it? You know, you told me if I did this, that I would get that. Mm-hmm. So we really expect that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to reciprocating the reliability, that's probably where I fall short. That's probably where I'm not a very good partner. Reciprocating in the reliability in that specific relationship or in general? In that specific relationship. In other words, if I hear a whisper, if I get an impression, and if I can't be relied on to go to Topeka, then it's perhaps hypocritical of me to then complain when I don't feel that my God is reliable to me. 
So let me ask you a question now. What if you had a long-standing history, and, and perhaps you do? I'm, there's a part of me that's kind of assuming that you do. And the only reason I'm jumping to that conclusion is because you have a perceptible piece about you. This is not some crazy, smooth, complimentary line that I'm sharing with you. I mean it. And I said this to you shortly after I met you. You have a perceptible peace and calm about you that seems connected to something that's very powerful, that keeps you stable and that keeps you loving and keeps you kind and keeps you warm because that's what you exude. You're not, I've been interviewed so many times and I don't think I've ever had two interviews that were the same because they're always going to be the merging of the two members and the colors of those. I wrote a chapter called People as Colors. And so with me being a redhead, and I don't mean, I mean, most of it's gone now, but once upon a time, a bright redhead. So we'll just make that my color is red. And if your color is blue, and that's not connected to anything for any reason, I'm just trying to offer teaching with an analogy. I give this one to my students all the time. And I'll say to one actor, so I won't even make it about you and me, Rob. I'll just say two actors. One is responsible for bringing their redness to the scene. The other is responsible for bringing their blueness to the scene. The goal is neither red nor blue. The goal is purple. I wish more people understood that. I wish more people understood that you can't review a person and expect the person who's listening to your review of the third party to necessarily buy into your review because your review will be based on the color that you experienced when you were in their midst. So, for example, if you are yellow and I am red and someone says, what's it like to spend time with Rob? You've hung out with him. You've been interviewed by him. You've kind of gotten to know him. You have a sense of who he is. What's it like? And I'd say, man, it's the most beautiful orange I've ever experienced. And that would be an accurate statement because that's Rob's yellow plus Glenn's red. And they want me to talk about Rob and who Rob is. What they haven't factored into consideration is that they are not Glenn's red. They are Bobby's blue. And Bobby's blue merges with Rob's yellow and they experience green when they're with you. They don't experience orange. That's such an important thing to understand about human dynamics. And it keeps it real simple, man. That is so easy to understand that. Someone says, what's your agent like? Are they really good? Are they strong? Are they kind? Are they whatever? It's like, all I can tell you is that they're orange. And orange really is working here. But they're not going to bring red to the agency that I'm signed with. They go in and sit down. And it turns out that their color merging, whatever their color is, when it merges with my agent's yellow or Rob's yellow, it produces a very different color. And if that color doesn't work, that's not going to be a good match. And so they said, well, I met him and I think the guy's a jerk. No, what you don't know is you're not reacting to the guy. You're reacting to the color that arose when the two of you gathered. Right. That's human energy. It's the way energy works. So I always think of what is the merging energy here? What color are we shooting for, Rob, in our exchanges with one another? And when both people, if the color they're after is love, and it's not about who's more right, who's more powerful, who owns more, who has their own airplane, who has a nine-bedroom house. 
I mean, really? Is that what we define ourselves by? Who has the fancy, spancy car? I don't, I don't care. I somehow managed to dodge the preoccupation with things that typically hold meaning in our lives. I don't care. Most of the things people are real caught up in caring about, I don't care about any of it. Well, that's why you're hanging out with me, obviously. Most people wouldn't. So I thank you for that. Well, I think you're pretty cool, man. To be honest with you, I think think you're a cool cat. Glenn, you kind of alluded to this earlier. You talked about your role or your purpose and this life. You've been given an opportunity to use your, I'll use my own words here, your prominence, your position, your profession to do good. And the question I have for you is, there are thousands of people in your profession mm-hmm. who have a prominent role. They're cultural icons, they're celebrities, who seem to, at least from the outsider's point of view, which I want to represent the outsider right now, sure, they seem to squander that. that and I'm going to call it a stewardship. Mm-hmm. The influence that they could have, and as you know, in our podcast, we like to talk about influence. We like to talk about inspiration and the ability to persuade, hopefully for good. It seems like so many of your contemporaries, I'd even call them your colleagues, and people in my industry, my core industry, I should say, of sports, I put them in the same boat, that they have this wonderful opportunity to use their platform, to use their reach, and I don't think they're getting the most out of it. Meanwhile, there could be that little old lady on the corner house who is a saint, but her universe is so small. She has so little opportunity to create influence beyond Mm -hmm. maybe the neighbor over the fence and the little boy that mows her lawn. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? I love that you're even mindful of that in the first place. (laughs) I think the answer is you make the most of what you have, where and when you have it. So whether you're having it at 14, 44, or 84, I guess the difference when you have it earlier is that you can devise a plan whereby you create a wider net for yourself. You're casting a wider net. That was always important to me. It was important to me to reach people well, first and foremost, to reach them well, and the extent of which is yet to be determined, but I'm going to position myself such that it can be far-reaching because I stand for truth and I stand for love. Why would I want a ceiling, especially a self-imposed ceiling on that? But I think that if you've got drive, you're going to have to go ahead and say yes to it fairly early on in life so that you can begin expanding your options. But if you didn't do that, let's say you're, this is just now becoming very important to you all of a sudden, and it's way, way later in life, then do what you can where you are. And again, I mean every word I'm saying. It's not being said because it's picturesque and it would be the correct thing to say. It's what I'm really feeling, which is that be nice to the crossing guard. Be nice to your postal carrier. Be nice to the people at the grocery store and be kind and be encouraging. And maybe you're running in a very small circle. Great, great. Run in that circle well. I was standing on a grave this week. Went to visit my stepfather's grave with my mom and with my wife. And then we went across the way to visit some other family members' graves. 
and on the ground there was a wasp. This was just a couple of days ago. It was last Friday. And I looked down and I realized how many people I've known. I don't hang with any of them currently, but over the years who would have felt that somehow it was their job and or right to stomp on it. And it was there in the grass. It wasn't flying around. And it was really just enjoying itself. Walking around, wasn't injured, just exploring the grass. I'll get back to flying, but right now I'm checking out the grass. And I intentionally did something as an exercise for myself, which is that I put my foot at an angle above it to remind myself how we're always at choice. And then I pulled it back and Carolyn was watching. She knew what I was doing. I said, I want to show you a pose that many people would take in this moment because this would be their level of engagement. And I put my foot right over it and I said, but look at what's getting ready to not happen. And my heart and my connection with this living thing are the reason it won't happen. And I pulled my foot back and I looked at him and I said, hey, bud. And I reached down with a little stick that was there and got up under its legs and lifted it up. And he was just crawling on the stick. And I had my moment with him. And then I set him back down and went on about my day. And he went on about his day. But we had contact. And that goes back to eye contact. So yes, even with a wasp, be still. Notice it. It's here to be noticed. I don't have anything else going on. The only place I am in the world right now is standing here over this grave. And there you are. Hi. And that's what's given me the profession that I have is to stop and just say, hi. You know how much better our world would be if people would just stop and go, hi. And not just, hey, man. Hey. Because you're still not there. It's just something you do. But if you stop and go, hi. Oh, my God. How many problems would be eliminated? How much disease would be eliminated? Because we would have so much wellness moving through us all and so much light anointing us all by just making eye contact and saying hi. And what the hi includes is, I see you there. And I know that you too have challenges like I do, like we all do. This is my chance to remind you that we're rowing this lifeboat together. And I don't care if you're a human, a squirrel, a wasp. Hi. I see you there. And then what happens, Rob, my experience has been, while that could seem so inconsequential to some, here's what I want to prove is so. If I've got a big corporate meeting, let's say I'm going into Warner Brothers for a series regular role on a new show that's going to be on ABC television. If I have had that kind of quality encounter, which I have many of a day, do you know that I enter the room differently? I don't think that surprises you. There's no part of me that believes that's a cutting edge concept to you. It's the truth. I walk in differently at Warner Brothers. Why? Because my life's already full. I'm already happy. There's a condition in metaphysics called the already made up mind. And I have some really good things that my mind is made up about. And one of them is that things work out for me. My mind is made up about that. It's been that way for 61 years. Why would I expect it to change? So I don't have to panic if things get a little rough for a while because I understand that things work out for me. It's the nature of them. If we get into some whitewater rafting, the metaphorical equivalent of that in life, it's, that's fine. Why? Because things work out for me. So in the midst of the white water, the difficulty, the challenges, I'm the guy in the boat that's going to turn to you and go, hi. It's huge. 
So when you visit a room like that with that consciousness that went and respected a wasp and said, go live your life, dude, go live your life. It was nice to have two minutes to observe you. Now you go in and they can tell your wellness is not hinged on their series. You're not desperate. You're the opposite of that. And what's great is it's not the goal. What's great is the byproduct of it is peace and wellness and love and enoughness, and they can't get enough of it. And they don't always even know what it was, but you leave the room and they go, we have to have that. Somebody make a phone call. Somebody make a phone call and book that. They're not even booking you. They think they're booking you. They think they're booking your name. They think they're booking your face. They're not. They're booking an energy that somehow calls them home. It calls them into the remembrance of who it is they are. That's what I teach. I've been a teacher for 36 years. I teach what people think is going to be an acting workshop. And then they visit it and realize it's split right down the middle. And that we prioritize wellness first. Then we get into the acting coaching. A very lengthy explanation. But appreciated. Thanks, buddy. So let me ask you, as we begin to wrap up. Wind down. Yeah. You just described the presence that you could have when you bring this, this outlook, this mindset into your job, into your, yes. into your life. Into your everywhere. Yeah, into your everywhere. So, you know, as a professional actor who's very prolific, who never seems to be without work, I hear you and I think, wow, I'm encouraged about the entertainment business. Mm. Because there's Glenn Morshower in the middle of it. And I'm sure there are others who share your values and your outlook. I would hope so. But I also fear that there are many who don't. And so can you, for me and for my audience, can you give us any encouragement about the future of those who create our pop culture, our movies, our television, our music? Because I don't think very many of them would be able to produce this type of articulated outlook of life like you have done. So, which would be disappointing, but probably factual. What hope can you give us, Glenn, for what's coming down the pike in the entertainment industry? You know, as much as I would like to offer a beautiful rainbow-filled sky in response to that, I don't know that I hold that because... I think we're responsible for our own contributions, and that's it. And to be encouraging of others to make their contributions, but we don't control their contributions. I'm talking about contributions of energy, the primary one being the energy of love, none higher than that. And the goal is not even a word I like. I replaced the word goal. I'm speaking it because we hear this word used a lot, but I would love to clarify. I replaced the word goal with nature many, many years ago, because it occurred to me that a goal is something you reach, meaning it's outside of yourself. We always hear the expression, he reached his goal. She reached her goal. So is it my goal, for example, Rob, is it my goal to be more loving? No, it's not. It's my nature. Is it my goal to be prosperous? No, it's my nature. So every time I would have used the word goal, I've replaced it with nature. The beauty of that is one, it's the truth. 
And two, your nature is right here, right now, already exists. Whereas a goal, again, you're going to have to go fetch it. Your nature is what you already are. I believe that if you're not experienced kindness, experiencing kindness, it's not because you're not kind. It's because you haven't dug deep enough into that which you already are. And if you drill deeper, where you'll hit is the oil of kindness. You got to drill deeper because it is your nature. Nobody has to go fetch love. Nobody has to go fetch prosperity. You don't have to fetch kindness. I believe, I believe with every fiber of my being, we don't have to fetch anything. We've got to be still and know that it's already so. And that it is our divine right and the willingness to drill to where it is, which is more really about uncovering it. And no one taught us better than Michelangelo about that when he was asked, how did you carve David? And he said, I didn't. I didn't carve David. I simply carved away everything that was not David. That's what he said. Friggin' genius. One of the wisest things that's ever been said because he was basically, I don't even, I honestly don't even know if Michelangelo knew how brilliant that statement was. Because he was saying, whatever you dream of exists within the marble called you. Why don't you do this? Why don't you just get everything else that isn't that out of its way? Carve it away. Everything that isn't love, carve that away. And what will be left is love. Everything that isn't health, carve that away. And what will be left is health, everything that isn't peace, everything that isn't prosperity, everything that isn't that. But you have to be committed. You've got to be devoted at the highest level. And unfortunately, this is why I don't predict a rainbow. I don't know that that holds true for humankind. I think most people want to dream about being well, but they don't want to do the work. They're waiting for Ryan Seacrest to show up on their front porch and hand them their perfect life that is one doorbell away. So they don't want to do the work, but they do want to talk about doing the work. They will go to personal development weekends, spend loads of money hearing about how wonderful life is and how great it can be for you, man, for you. And then they go home with all the materials they've purchased and a year later, not my statistic, I've heard this said, that 75% of materials purchased during such weekends are still in their plastic wrap a year later. And they have a nickname for these things. They're not called self-help. They're called shelf help because that's where they sit. So I don't have a hopeful forecast. I have a personal hopeful forecast for the individual, which means for the individual, your dream life is readily available. It's a decision away. That's all it is. It's right here and it's awaiting your decision. And what follows the decision is the commitment. And then you will have done your part. We are both men of faith. Do you know that the most important vision I have in my life, Rob, is not someone handing me a gold trophy called an Oscar. That doesn't even make my top 50. Not even top five, top 50. It's not there. But number one, unequivocally, is that I would stand before God on the day of my departure from earth and God would smile and say, that's what I had in mind, kid. And that never goes away. That vision is present in my life every day of my life. And frankly, it's what keeps my life in line. And it's what gives me those dashboard lights, alarms, if you will, that let us know when we're out of bounds. When I'm getting ready to make a decision or participate in an activity that is incongruent with my highest good, 
thank God for dashboard lights because they go off and the simple, gentle voice is, Glenn, not for you, not for you. And there's another voice from God that says, I also, by the way, don't care about popularity. Don't be misled by popularity. You have been given an internal mandate, internal mandate system that is pure and it's clear. Don't base the decisions you make on whether or not it's popular to make it. And I don't. And I haven't my whole life. People can line up in droves for the new thing, the new way. I don't care. I check in and see if it's true. Is it true for me? And the thing that I am committed to more than anything, and it seems to help any person I've ever shared this with, is that there is nothing of greater importance in our lives, nothing than personal peace. So in a discussion I was having last night with a friend, I said, there's a simple litmus test for me in terms of what I will and won't do. Does this encourage my sense of personal peace or does it disrupt it? And if it disrupts it, the answer is no, period. I don't care about the money. I don't care about the image. I don't care because if I lose that, I've lost it all. That's my all. My everything, Rob, is my sense of personal peace. You can take my helicopter that I don't own, my plane that I don't own, my 10 red bedroom house that I don't own, take it all away, and even in the future, take it away. But don't take away my personal peace because I've lost everything if I lose that. That keeps me in line in a crazy business called show. And I wish more people came from that place of love and understanding because then all of this division and even what's going on in our nation politically, and I know we're done. This is the end of the interview, so I won't open up that can of worms, but I'm very sad about it. I'm admitting to you, I'm so sad about the division that we don't have this centralized party called the party of unity where both sides grab hands and say, we've got bigger fish to fry and more important ways to spend our time than arguing over who's the most right. We've got stuff to do. And right now, our sense of personal peace is at risk in this country and in this world. Why, why aren't we doing something about that other than fighting? Divided we fall, united we stand. So I love you, brother. And we're in early stages of friendship, but I'm grateful that you let me come here and spill the beans of my soul. I appreciate that. And my soul appreciates that. Thank you, Glenn. Love you too. And thanks for your influence. You're a powerful persuader. And thanks for inspiring us today. So even through Zoom, how about a fist bump right there? <laughs> you got it, baby. All right. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, everyone watch Glenn Morshower's movies and television shows. You'll love them. We'll be back on The Resident next season. Fantastic. We'll see you on TV. Thanks, buddy. My friend Glenn Morshower, he's played countless roles in TV and film, including his latest movie with Denzel Washington coming in January 2021 called The Little Things. But the best part Glenn always plays is himself. And to hear all that he's capable of, watch the full episode on our YouTube channel or listen on your favorite podcast platform.